0: You're listening to a sermon from Mission City Fellowship of San Antonio, Texas. Mission City Fellowship exists to make and mature disciples of Jesus Christ, who live all of life for the glory of God and proclaim Christ for the joy of all people. When Paul writes of those who labor among you, Paul is certainly referring to pastors or elders. And again, I use that word interchangeably. An elder is a pastor, a pastor is an elder. Uh, and And it is a command that comes to the people of God that they respect those individuals who are pastors and elders. To respect is to regard highly. It's to regard in a pro- an appropriate way those who have that kind of leadership. It is to recognize that they are legitimate leaders among you. So as you think about your pastors, you acknowledge that they are leaders and you respond with the heart respect. Now, this doesn't mean that you are to idolize pastors. It does not mean that you, are, that you could or should put them on some kind of pedestal. This doesn't mean, certainly, that you gloss over their, their weaknesses or their failures or their sins. This doesn't mean that they can do no wrong, that everything they do and everything they say is absolutely right. This doesn't mean that you can't disagree with them. This doesn't mean that they won't at times miss things or decide poorly. This does mean when you think of them, you purpose to consider them with respectful regard for what they do in the church. This does mean that because of that high regard, you pray for them. This does mean that you give appropriate weight to their words and are respectful of their time and of their limitations. This does mean when you speak about them, you speak carefully in ways that honor them. Why? Because they labor among you. Their labor is not some half hearted efforts or some lazy inconsistencies. The word labor here is used to describe a woman giving birth. That's an intense labor. They work hard. They are persistent each day. They are deeply committed men who give themselves to the glory of Christ, who give themselves to the advancement of the kingdom, who give themselves to the thriving of the church, who give themselves to the good of fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. These are the things that fill their hearts, and because these things fill their hearts, they fill their days with those kinds of work. This work is just not a Sunday thing for them. I remember when I first came to my first church many years ago, there was a a young girl in the church. She came up and she asked me, so what do you do for a living? And I said, well, I'm a pastor. And she laughed and said, no, really, what do you do? She didn't have any concept. She thought what I did was just a Sunday thing. She didn't understand the larger implications for what it means to care for and pastor people. It's not just a Sunday thing. It's not just a fellowship group night thing. Leaders like that he is describing as their labor, they are working continually. They are praying often. They are giving themselves to what matters most in the life and purpose of the church to, to make and mature disciples. It is to these men you are to give respect. Not glory, but respect. I think that's an important distinction. Glory belongs to the Lord. We don't seek His glory. We're not after glory. We don't want the attention. We don't want the applause. We don't want the credit because none of that belongs to to pastors or elders. It all belongs to the Lord. But we honor these men for the work of God's grace in their lives. We see their work. We appreciate what they are doing. We know that every good thing from them is ultimately the work of God in them and their faithfulness to steward that in humility for the church. But we see, again, how they submit to the Lord, how they follow Him, how His priorities become their priorities, how His heart fills their heart and so we are thankful for that. We have thankful hearts and we show them due respect. These are those who labor. Paul not only says the past, but that they labor, he tells us the location of their labor. They labor among you. You know, this was Paul's strategy everywhere he went. It certainly was his strategy when he came into the city of Thessalonica. He was to be among the people. Not from afar, sending in things and giving instruction. He came and was among the people. In chapter 1, we find this, verse 5, You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. In chapter 2, we find these words, But we were gently among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel, but our very selves. Because you have become very dear to us. In chapter 3, we hear these words, And Timothy has brought us the good news of your faith and love, and reported that you always remember us kindly, and long to see us as we long to see you. There was a deep, affectionate relationship there, because Paul came and lived and ministered among the people. Paul loved to be part of the lives of the people. He came to serve the lives of the people. He came to bring the life-giving message of Christ to. You know, just to be candid with you, it is tempting at times as pastors to retreat into our theological or doctrinal ivory towers and just kind of stay there. To immerse ourselves in study. To immerse ourselves in planning. To immerse ourselves in strategizing. But Paul says, those who labor, their labor is seen clearly in their relationships among the people. This labor is in loving and in caring for people and in correcting people and in listening to people and walking alongside of people and giving to people and coming to sustain people by the grace of God. That is what a pastor is called to do. That is the labor that he does among the people. This goes back a few years, a few decades actually. When I was first coming into ministry, There was something called church growth that was becoming popular among the churches. And at the heart of church growth, this was a movement. Now certainly we're not against churches growing, but church growth as a movement uh, was a desire to use business models and business principles to promote the growth of the church. And I think that still, we still see vestiges of that in some places today. Church growth looked at churches and all they did through that lens of the business model. Essentially, that's what they did, and I'm, I'm 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 simplifying this. I know it's a little more complicated, but I'm I'm trying to get to the core of this. So church growth asked questions about how can we get the church to grow larger? How can we get past current growth barriers to become a larger church? Church growth sought to clarify what the commodity that the church actually had to offer the world. And it thought about, and it used those kinds of terms. What are we actually offering? What is it that we're selling, so to say? What is the commodity that the church has? And so we might say, well, that has to be the gospel. Church growth movement said, no, what is the commodity the church has to offer is, is relationships. One of the things that church growth did, was to encourage pastors to stop seeing and thinking of themselves as shepherds, but rather to see themselves as ranchers. I remember reading that and just being like, whoa, that's a big shift. Shepherds intimately know and care for a local flock. Ranchers are overseeing a big herd and must give themselves to those leadership principles. And as with most things, there were some helpful things that came out of that. There were some things that, 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 that probably needed to be h- highlighted. But as a whole, it led many pastors and many churches toward an unbiblical model and replaced making disciples with gaining members. As one evangelist called it, the church became a mile wide, but it was only an inch deep. The churches had more people, but it had fewer disciples. Because they were brought in under a consumeristic kind of of model. Come consume what we have. And so it taught church members to be consumers. I want to go somewhere where I can consume and enjoy the ministries they have because that's what I want for me and my family. And what happened through this, pastors became isolated from the very people they were called to love and to lead and to feed and protect. They were no longer laboring among the people. They were laboring over the people. Paul's instruction here sees the elder laboring among the people. Their life is filled with intentional, redemptive relationships everywhere in their life. That's what a pastor fills his life with. The call of ministry is toward people, not to lord it over people. It is to serve, not to be served. It is to follow the the example of our Savior Jesus. It is a call to love all people, especially those who are unlovable, especially those who may be difficult or obstinate or they're just depleting. Laboring among the people is a call to willingly walk into the messes that other people create and to do it with the compassion and wisdom of Christ. That's what pastors do. It requires a pastor getting out of their agenda into God's agenda, it means slowing down to God's pace of change in other people's lives. And that can be very difficult because we want them to change more quickly. We, we're okay with us taking time to change, but we want other people to change more quickly. Certainly, for a pastor to be a faithful steward and to handle rightly the Word of God, it requires a good amount of time alone in prayer and study. That must be part of what he does. But the heart of the pastor, the heart of an elder, is to work among his people ultimately. And his prayers and his studies are to better serve those very people. Pastors labor among their people. That's what Paul says. Esteem or respect them for those who do this work because it is taxing and it is costly. Paul goes on and he tells us that we are to respect those who labor among us and are over us. They have a prominent place in decision making and leading in the church. The word used to, that is translated over us, is, is basically a word that's used to describe governing or presiding over. And in that idea of governing, there are two aspects there is leading, and then there is caring. Authority and compassion are both tied to that word. Pastors have the authority to lead and they have the mandate to lead in compassion or with compassion. This points to the work that they do in leading the church and and hopefully making humble and wise decisions that keep the church heading in the right direction, that protect the church from going off into, into false things or being attacked in some way. Pastors have a role to make sure the church is following the will and purpose of the Lord for the church. Pastors must be able to keep the church focused on its mission to go and make disciples, or as we say in our church, to make mature disciples for Jesus Christ. And in doing so, they pay—they have to pay attention to the structures and processes of that church that help the church make a mature disciples all that's in this presiding or governing or, or over it's not so much about a position as it is a responsibility a few years back a, <laughs> a wonderful book I found so helpful came out it was titled The Trellis and the Vine this book gave a helpful picture for understanding the work of the church all Christian ministry it says is a mixture of trellis work and vine work there is vine work This is the prayerful preaching and teaching of the Word of God to see people converted and to see people grow to maturity as disciples of Christ. It is the vine, as Jesus said, I am the vine. The vine work is the life of Christ growing, the life of Christ being replicated in more and more people. That is what the church ultimately is about, is the vine. Vine work is the Great Commission. But there's also a trellis a trellis has work. It is creating and maintaining the physical and organizational structures and programs that support the vine work and its growth. A trellis, it, hopefully you know, it's just this structure of open lattices that allow a vine to grow in it and provide support so that the vine isn't growing on the ground where it's trampled and its fruit is lost. It allows it to grow up, it allows it to thrive, it allows it to be productive. So in the church, as we try to make disciples by proclaiming the life in Christ, there are some God-given structures or, or things that God uses, I'll say that way, that support the vine. These things aren't eternal. They can come and go, but they're helpful things that allow the vine to grow. So in our church, here's what trellis, the trellis would, would be it would be things like small group ministries, the structures of small group ministry. It would be Mission City Kids, the structure that's behind that. It would be church membership and the process of church membership. This is all trailers' work. It all serves to, to promote the preaching and the gospel and the life of Christ. It would also be things like setting up and tearing down each Sunday. It would be it would be the sound team getting here and working hard to make sure that we can sing praise to our God and we can hear God's word clearly each week. It is the worship team practicing songs. All of that is in support of the vine. Ultimately, the heart is the vine. Here's the problem: pastors can be can be tempted to focus totally on the trailers. That if I can get the trailers purpose per, perfectly, then all this other stuff will take care of itself. And so we want to be careful. We do need trellis. We do need those structures that serve the vine. But the structures aren't eternal. The vine, the work of the vine is what's eternal. And that's what we want to always promote. But, but pastors have that responsibility in the church. We prioritize vine work, but we also govern over the trellis work, the structures that help the church go and make disciples. Pastors govern this way because they want to see Christ exalted and to see His life spread and replicated into more and more hearts. Now, pastors are not good, always good administrators. If you do, you know, I would be the first to admit that is not my strength. And many times there are pastors that I've met that that is not really their strength as a ministry, but yet they still need to do that. So, in wisdom, God provides other people in the church with gifts that come alongside of the pastor in order to help them run and structure things in, in ways that serve the preaching of Christ and the making of disciples. But whatever they're bringing in in support or help, they are charged as pastors with presiding over the church with authority and compassion in all areas so next Paul tells us to respect those who labor among you and are over you and admonish you admonish you leaders are those who admonish their brothers and sisters in the Lord admonishing is a warning it's warning people of possible dangers it's saying hey you need to pay attention here you need to look at this there's a concern here. There's something you might want to take, take notice of. It is gently correcting people who are in danger or who are going towards danger. Admonishing is not always easy because most people I know don't like to be told that they're doing something wrong or that they're in danger. But it is necessary. We admonish In the church, because of what the Word tells us in Hebrews chapter 3, we find these words. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God, but exhort one another every day. That exhort word there is admonish. But admonish, exhort one another every day As long as it is called today That none of you may be hardened By the deceitfulness of sin Do it every day This, is, this, is, this is, has a priority This has a place of prominence In the life of the church Admonishing is essential Because sin is deceitful And will harden a heart And because sin is deceitful, a person who's in that sin often doesn't see that they're in that sin. That's why it's deceitful. Pastors are to admonish. They're to warn by pointing out those issues. Now that's not the only thing pastors do, but this is one of the things pastors are called to do. And admonishing has two sides to it. There is correcting doctrinal error, and then there is correcting moral error. So, it is gently correcting those who have wandered from the truth into false teaching of some kind, and it is also gently correcting those who have wandered into sin and are making choices that are contrary to God's Word, to God's will, and to God's way. Correction or admonition, listen, is part of a healthy church. Actually, this is one of the ways a church stays healthy. It is by humble and gentle correction. And Paul tells us this is one of the tasks a pastor performs in the church. When they become aware of doctrinal error or persistent moral error, they're, they're moved with love and compassion and filled with gentleness. They, they bring this to the person's attention. They come alongside that person and then patiently walk with them through that. It is important to just take a moment here and I want to, and to, to, to talk and to address the issue of spiritual abuse. This is what happens when admonition and correction are fueled by selfish ambition and ego and pride instead of humility, compassion, and kindness. I know in my life I have been admonished more than once by pastors, by leaders, certainly by my parents, And it's always been done in a a good way. It wasn't always easy to hear, but it was always done in a good way. But sadly, too many people have been on the end of fleshly admonition that tore them down instead of built them up. There are way too many examples of spiritual abuse in the church from those in leadership who are directed at those that they're called actually to lay their lives down for. Maybe this has been in your experience at some point in your church life. Maybe you shared something difficult with someone in leadership that was used against you. Maybe you were in a church where you were silenced and and kept from asking honest questions. Maybe you were in a church where leaders were more concerned about their power and position than Christ's glory and the good of others. Maybe you were in a church where You often heard messages about not touching God's anointed. Meaning you better not mess with the pastor. Maybe it was a constant emphasis on the leader's authority and on your submission. The list goes on and on. Spiritual abuse is certainly not what Paul is talking about here, nor is it condoned anywhere in Scripture. Spiritual abuse comes out of leaders whose hearts are filled with ego, selfish ambition, insecurity, and neediness. And this is contrary to what the Word instructs for pastors. In 1 Peter chapter 5, we find this. Uh, you know, in 1 Thessalonians 5, Paul is addressing the members. In 1, Thess- in 1 Peter 5, he's addressing elders. I exhort elders among you, 1 Peter 5, as as a fellow elder and as a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. That is the charge to pastors. That is how you can pray. One thing, you can pray for your pastors. One of the first conversations I had with Pastor Phil when he approached me about joining him and planting this church, he made this, this statement, and we've talked about this a number of times over the last few years. He said, we want to be men, we want to be pastors, Who need less and love more. When he said that, I was like, that that's it. That's right. That's what God calls us to. We need less, not because we don't have needs, but we need less because we're more satisfied in Christ. We're entrusting our needs to him. We're entrusting him to take care of us. It's not that we're less important than other people. It's that we're willing to regard other people as more important than ourselves. I am so grateful for this. When we are satisfied in Christ, when we are confident of His provision for us, and it works for all people as followers of Christ, we need less from people. We don't need them to respond in a certain way. We don't need their affirmation. What we want is to love them and to come alongside them for their good, for the glory of God. This frees us from the temptation to manipulate or to to bully or to do something in that area. Pray this for us. Pray that God would rid us increasingly of pride and ego and selfish ambition. That we would never give place to being self-serving, self-promoting, or self-protective. These prevent us from serving you. They prevent us from serving you well and can be pathways to, to spiritual abuse. I don't see that happening, but pray that it never does. Listen, that some pastors might be abusive does not diminish in any way from God's instructions that pastors are those who admonish their brothers and sisters. It is to be done according to what he lays out. You know, a few years back, there was in my church a discipline issue that came up. And what was a difficult situation became even more complicated because a relative of the person inserted themselves into that process. After a couple of meetings, uh, God convicted me that my heart was not right towards these people, towards these individuals. My heart wasn't filled with concern for their redemption or their sanctification. I wasn't concerned for their spiritual well-being. I didn't want to follow... I wasn't... Desiring and concerned that they follow Christ. That they receive His love. That they know the truth. That they be set free. I was irritated. Frustrated. And I was put out with the whole thing. And the Lord began to convict me. The beginning of our third meeting. I began by confessing the sin of my heart. And I said I have to tell you. My heart is not right towards you. And I'm asking you to forgive me. Now I cannot say this will happen every time. But the whole nature and tone of our conversation changed. They forgave me and we were able to move forward. There were still hard things to say. There were hard decisions to make. But we were able, God brought us to a good place. Now I don't think I crossed into a spiritual abuse in that instance. But I saw that the door had been opened and but by the grace of God, I probably would have walked through it. Again, pray that God frees your pastors from pride and ego and replaces it with humility and compassion even as we admonish our brothers and sisters. The second command here. Christians are to esteem their leaders highly in love. And to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Esteem and respect are closely related. Paul is trying to make sure these Christians in Thessalonica, and by implication, us today, that we hold their pastors in high regard in their hearts, and that high regard should be filled with a love for them. May God fill your pastor's heart with his love for you, and may God fill your hearts with his love for your pastors. that's That's what we want to see. But notice how Paul crafts this sentence. Esteem them highly in love for their work. Paul points them to the work of the leaders. They are to esteem them not because of their title or their position or their rank or their status, but for their work. Their work shows their heart. Their labor shows them to be leaders. In the church... People don't lead because they are appointed to a position. They are appointed to a position because they are already leading in some capacity. It's just recognizing the work of God that's already in place. If a person is waiting to be recognized before they give themselves to the work of the kingdom, then they probably should not be in leadership. And more importantly, they need to re-examine what it means to follow Christ. Is there resolve and commitment in a person's heart for the life and ministry of the church or is it just a Sunday thing or a fellowship group thing? Christ-filled leaders labor hard for Christ. Not because they have a title, but because Christ is their Lord. And this leads us quickly to the final command which is to be at peace. Christians are to be at peace. Be at peace among yourselves. The love they are to have for one another is seen in the peace that exists among them. Peace is the absence of discord. It is the maintaining of harmony. harmony, And it should be the intention and prayer of every member of the church. It is a major requirement for the followers of Christ that we be people of peace, that we seek peace, that we go after peace, that we maintain the peace. Romans chapter 12, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all people. Hebrews chapter 12, strive for peace with everyone. Romans 14, so then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. 1 Corinthians 14, for God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. James 3, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Peace matters. Jesus made it very clear. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. In light of the adversity that was facing that ancient church, and facing the church today, and the suffering that they were experiencing at the hand of their society, community loyalty and peace was the best defense against that opposition. And it was certainly one of the most effective witnesses to Jesus and the gospel. The unity that existed. Be at peace. Work for this. Pray for this. Watch your words. Guard your attitudes towards others. Keep no record of wrong. Endure all things. Hope all things. Believe all things. Our culture is being torn apart by factions. And it is trying to pull the church into it. The fault lines that run through our nation are trying to run through the church and we must not let it. Do your best. In the power of the the Spirit to maintain harmony. Respect those who are your pastors. Esteem them highly. And be at peace. You know, communion reminds us every week that our union in Christ brings us into union with each other. He has torn down all the walls that separate us and make, and He made us into one by His blood. He has made us at peace with each other. We, we introduce the striving and the division and the discord. Communion centers us in Christ and is a display of our unity. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word that teaches us, that corrects us, that inspires us, that tells us of Your work. And in this, this, this morning, just understanding the relationship between pastors and the people they shepherd. Lord, I pray that you would work this among your people. That this would be a healthy relationship. A Christ-honoring relationship between those who lead and the people they lead. Father, we pray You would keep us free from discord. We pray, Father, that You would keep us free from selfish ambition, from ego, from pride. And that more and more we would see Christ as He works among us, as He makes disciples, as He draws people to Himself. Thank You for making us one. Thank You for making us one in You, Lord. And I pray that we would only know greater and greater and deeper and deeper expressions of that oneness. Work that among this church. Let that, Lord, just do that, that work of grace in our church. We pray in Jesus' name.